It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 80, the year I was born episode of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's happening, the J? The Alpha Omega Beast is super pumped this week. We've hit the 80s. Unbelievable. And you had the correlation of your birth year and the old J-Man being born at the tail end of 79. Since I don't have the same number correlation, I'm going with the number correlation here for the big 8-0 with one of my favorite receivers of all time. It's the Jerry Rice yeah. edition of the Western like Podcast. It. Yeah, but as Good. pumped as vascular and as striated as ever. Hey, y'all. And we have a doozy of a show for you this week. Of course, we told you guys, if you listened last week, that you're going to be hearing a review of the first season of Masters of the Universe Revelations on Netflix. Uh, We're bringing back the most action-packed segment in weekly podcasting. Of course, I'm talking about Thursday night, motherfucking prime. And this week, we have a good one. Uh, Bill Lustig's revenge classic from 1983, Vigilante. Um, Also, something we didn't tell you guys about, we are coming with another movie review. This time, it's going to be the brand new Woodstock 99 documentary that everybody's been talking so much about that was on HBO Max. So, of course, we're going to have some goofs and much, much more on the show. So let's get into it, shall we? The J. Let's go. I'm fueled um, this week by that Tawa Energy. Hey, you know, have you tried that yet? It's the Rocks Energy drink. I have not. I'm not a big energy drink guy. I don't. I don't know if uh, if we've ever gotten into this before, but yeah, not a big energy drink. I'm more of a coffee guy. See, I I quit. Like my my thing was, I'd always have my one cup traditionally. I'm you know me creature habit. Every morning, I'd have my black coffee, my cup, and then. Uh, you know, every once in a while with my crazy work schedules, I was in the habit of drinking sugar-free Red Bull, but I got off that shit a while ago. But of course, my man, The Rock, you know, got to get me back in the energy drink game. But it, it is pretty good stuff. And it is overall for an energy drink, I must say. Asterix, that shit. Hey, yeah, but it is pretty healthy for an energy drink. You know, it has a lot of uh, good shit in it. And I don't overdo it. But days like this where I started at 6 a.m. and pop it on the podcast, I am... Tawa fueled, hey, yeah. or I'm sorry, I keep calling it Tawa. Zoa, Z O A. Ah, okay. Sorry, yeah, the I've, rock. I've seen some stuff about it, but it's likely not something that I would try because, like I said, I still stick to coffee. I've been making a lot of different dietary fucking changes recently too, and uh, I've cut way back on caffeine in general. But I still got to do the morning coffee. That's just how it is, and then I try and. See how I do from there, depending on the I'm day and what's going on. But you know how that is, man. Moderation but, uh, is key. Hey, yep. That's true. So uh, let's just get into it, dude. You kind of reminded me there with The Rock. So you you set up the segue into the opener this week. We have a lot of wrestling-related stuff uh, to talk about here in the next few weeks. But we've also had a pretty major story develop since the last week that we talked. And, of course, I'm talking about the WWE releasing by his request, Ric Flair. And the biggest story, of course, is out of nowhere to a lot of people. uh, The WWE has released Bray Wyatt. 
Um, and I think, you know, considering how much they've put into that character and stuff over the last few years, I think that's another reason why everybody was so surprised. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, and, and again, we've heard the, the company line too with Bray where it was a cost saving measure. Um, I don't know where I kind of fit in with that. I don't really believe it necessarily, uh, considering how much money this company makes and how much even they made over the course of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, man, two major names released by the WWE. This seems to be uh, par for the course and potentially another pretty big name uh, going to be on the move after SummerSlam. It's being rumored that Adam Cole uh, might be out uh, sooner than later as well. So, uh, it, it, dude, I will say this, regardless of your feelings about what they've done or whatever, this has been one of the most exciting times to be a professional wrestling fan as of late because a lot of people were able to jump ship and whatnot. And that's that's kind of been happening a lot lately. So it's been pretty wild. We've been going through it, man, week week to week. It's it's getting crazier and crazier by the week of all the goings-ons here. And we mentioned with uh, WCW officially closing shop around 2001, this is 20 years later, and we're kind of in a completely evolved way, kind of reliving those days in in a, in a certain aspect with two humongous stars that are still able to go, as we mentioned last week with AEW signing Daniel Bryan and CM Punk, and a bunch of these pretty significant releases from the WWE starting a few weeks ago with Braun Strowman, who is rumored to be uh, being courted back to the WWE because that was a cost-cutting thing. And uh, there was a lot of mention with the new the newer hire of current WWE president Nick Khan by Vince McMahon. Uh, Nick Khan makes something like a million dollars a year. So he has to do his job, quite obviously, with that kind of pay. And his job is to make the WWE money. And that seems like is what he's doing. Uh, we've referenced it a few times when it was brought up here on the pod that the WWE financially is breaking all kinds of their own records. They're doing really good. You know, yeah. The, yeah. the the Peacock deal might not have been something we really liked, but it really helped their bottom line. And, of course, not too um, far removed before that, they made the big Fox Sports deal. So, as we said, Vince McMahon's kind of laughing all the way to the bank if you want to look at the business side of, of the WWE. But as we say, man, we're, we're fans. We just want good, entertaining, solid professional wrestling. We're not worried about Vince McMahon making more and more money or the WWE as a company making money. We want it to be entertaining. And uh, just to get back to the point at hand, hey, uh, the Ric Flair thing, not too big of a surprise. He was kind of floundering in his, in his kind of role there. Uh, he made a statement saying that he was officially able to respond now, and he wants to make it clear that everyone, uh, he is not upset with WWE at all. They are solely responsible for putting me in the position of life that I'm in right now, where I'm seen in the brightest light ever. We have a different vision for my future. I wish them nothing but continued success. So, you know, that was cool to see. You know, there's no hard feelings. It's just kind of a business thing, and Ric Flair, I'm sure, just wants his freedom back. And as far as Bray Wyatt goes, like you said, there's a lot to it. Nothing has been officially announced yet, so it's all speculation. Uh, there's a lot of personal things that could have been going on with Bray. Uh, of course, taking a big loss with one of his best friends, Luke Harper. I'm sure, you know, don't know the man personally, but assuming he took that pretty hard. I know he has a, a newborn baby. Uh, his family members were released 
not ridiculously long ago, his dad, Mike Rotundo, uh, as a, a an agent. And then, of course, his brother, Bo Dallas, was hanging in there on the roster for years, even though he wasn't too prominently featured on TV for a while. He was still let go not ridiculously long ago. So there's a lot of different factors there that might play into a mental side of things where he just wasn't in the right place and could have asked for his release. But uh, we don't know any of the the specifics yet. Well, they did. I mean, WWE said he was released for budgetary reasons. So okay. that's, I, the, I that's that. their side of it. Okay. But uh, I mean, it, okay. So here's a question that I'll pose to you with all this stuff, the Jay. Uh, let's say AEW signs Bray Wyatt. They bring in Adam Cole. Uh, the Let's say that what we've heard about Daniel Bryan and Punk is definitively true. They're coming in too. Um. Would you say then that the pendulum is kind of swung or not quite yet? And I don't mean from like the stuff we were previously talking about. I'm just talking about like as far as like talented rosters and, you know, things like that. Um, is AEW above the WWE at this point or if all that stuff happens or do you think uh, time will tell or do you think no? Well, off the bat, hey, that's a great disclaimer because we got to quit comparing the AEW and WWE as as being head-to-head competition. We've been over that. You and I know all too well that AEW has been going on for, for roughly around a two-year time period to the WWE 60-plus year history. You know, you can't compare that kind of stuff. But as far as what you're specifically comparing, uh, that's what I wanted to mention. It's a good way to put yeah, it. Yeah, like the talent rosters yeah. and stuff like that. And, that's, and, and, I, and as far I think, as watchability and things like that, too. I think the pendulum is swinging in favor of AEW uh, due to exactly what you're saying. The big asterisk that we have to look at, however, is how they're going to book all this talent coming in, how they're going to still properly push the younger talent in AEW. Because the now established guys there too, like people right. that should be up in the card. Because what comes with all this, I mean, hypothetically adding in an Adam Cole as well, which again would make sense. He kind of did everything he could in NXT. If Vince doesn't want him on the main roster, what more can he do in NXT? And if he's a free agent, you're going to want to go to the second, you know, biggest spotlight you can, and that's AEW right now. And on top of all that, on a personal level, that's where his current girlfriend, um, Britt Baker, is. So you know, there's a lot that would push Adam Cole, I would assume, towards definitely signing with AEW. So again, hypothetically, you're getting Daniel Bryan. CM Punk and Adam Cole within a few month time frame with already a pretty stacked roster, then the problem becomes the the classic word oversaturation. Hey, Ed, and I guess the timing is good there that they are debuting, which we will be previewing later in the show here, but they are debuting that new show Rampage because they're definitely going to need that additional TV time with, with all these guys coming in with a pretty stacked current roster as well. Yeah, and I think that's, that's possibly part of the point of why they're trying to acquire so so much talent because i mean let's face it dude if if a bray wyatt's out there um i don't foresee him like he's a guy that like there's there's a handful of guys and i think braun Strowman's kind of like this too um if they're gonna sign anywhere it's gonna be AEW or back to wwe um these are not talents that would sign with a ring of honor because that just wouldn't make sense in the grand scheme of things for their company um, and then the other lower level companies, there's no way they can afford them. And then you get that, like Braun, I don't see going to have a career in Japan, which 
could be extremely lucrative for him. I don't know if that's something he's even considered or not, but, uh, you know, there's only so many places for these guys to work and there's only so many places where what they do could actually work. Um, so, you know, other than like maybe an appearance or something like that, uh, but that's pretty much what we're looking at. And I, I think that it is, you know, the, the pendulum's definitely starting to swing more and more. Um, it's going to take a lot more consistent work, of course, from AEW to do that. And it's going to be interesting to see how the company comes off with another hour of television every week that's on TV, not the the stuff that's strictly YouTube. Um, you know, I just, I'm excited for it because I enjoy AEW and I think there is more time in the week for their product for me. Um, I'm not going to watch Dark and Dark Elevation and stuff like that on YouTube. Maybe occasionally I'll watch stuff, but it's not for me per se. Um, but another hour on on you know, TBS or whatever, every week or whatever they're going to do, or TNT, I forget which channel it's even on. I think it might be TNT, um, but I'm, I'm all for it at this point. Yeah, as, as we mentioned, it's a good time to be a pro wrestling fan at the end of the day. A lot of fun stuff to talk about every week and the end of this summer going into the fall with all the debuts and stuff is going to be a blast. Yeah, man. And uh, also to here, just quickly to bring this up, uh, we'll get way more into this next week on the show. Uh, but yeah, uh, what's real is getting ready to go to AEW Dynamite and the very, very first episode of Rampage next week in person. I know me and you are both pretty excited for that, man. It's going to be a blast. Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about specifics on both shows because I figure that's, you know, the best time out with the most information that we'll have as far as our recording schedule goes. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to record a little bit of stuff here and there at the shows too. see how that goes too. Uh, no promises because who knows what's going to happen with everything. But nonetheless, uh, definitely looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. And uh, I, I just I'm excited to see uh, not just live pro wrestling, but like live pro wrestling with that type of, you know, like fucking environment uh, like I'm, I'm really stoked for that exactly it's going to be the first live tv taping we've been to in literally years hey you know including mm-hmm. the the very historic first ever episode of aew rampage uh so we, we were talking about that when we first got tickets and then that it was announced that rampage was going to debut at the peterson event center here in pittsburgh so another notch a uh, very fortunate blessed guys man but another notch on our belts as fans at, at cool things that we've attended live and, and been there in person to experience. So they, I can't wait, man, go with my brother to, to some live wrestling on live television, man, broadcast TV, baby. What's real's going it, big. Hey, it, it's going to be super cool uh, because like kind of what you were talking about there, like the, we have a pretty significant list uh, collectively of guys that we've got to see in person through our lives, you know, going to wrestling shows and being wrestling fans. And uh, there's a big one, uh, potentially, I'm saying it's definitely going to happen. I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. But uh, to be able to see Sting live, which is something that neither one of us have ever ever been able to say that, that we've done. So that's really cool. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of talent, too, that, you know, some people that you've even already seen the Jay that I want to see, uh, like the Lucha Brothers. And, you know, uh, I've seen Darby Allen, but I'm, I'm always down to see him again. Uh, I also heard some rumblings that there could be other debuts happening. Uh, and also uh, really cool, too. Uh, we're going to see one of the stages of Jericho 
uh, which I'm excited about. Um, you know, and you know, this, this upcoming week, they're going to do Juventud Guerrera and we're going to probably find out Wednesday night, uh, which we'll talk about next week on the show, who it's actually going to be. But, uh, the J we, I think me and you may have talked about this a little bit, uh, see what you think, or if you got a, a potential guess for that stage of Jericho, but I think it's going to be potentially Kurt Angle. Oh, that's a good call. I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind. And that is a true possibility for them to be able to pull that off. So good call there. Uh, it's tough to counter that here on the spot. Hey, um, that's a tough one. Just, I, I was just trying to use, this is what I was thinking. Like, obviously they're in Pittsburgh uh, and Jericho and Angle had a history. You know, they've had matches and stuff in the WWE in the past. Um, so, you know, like it, it might work out as one of the cooler ones you know like it, it they all seem to have a pattern to it but i might be reading a little bit too much into it and it's very possible that kurt angle is not the choice um but yeah man i'm I'm really interested to see you know like is it is it possible that maybe it could be somebody from new japan exactly yeah i i'm gonna go with your guess since i don't have anything better off the top of my head at hand here hey you know, we'll see if uh if angle is the big surprise for that part of the trials of Jericho, the labors of Jericho, if you will. Uh, but that's an awesome call. And that'd be ridiculous to see live. I mean, think about the pop that Kurt Angle would get. That's what I mean. In Pittsburgh. Yeah. So that's, that's great. And you Have know, you, I, I think that, I think that even in Angle's condition now, that as long as he's in decent shape, like Jericho would be able to easily work with him. That's, I, that's one even though I'm not as big of a fan of Jericho as many people are, that's one thing that I will not disparage him on whatsoever is he can kind of work his way with almost anyone in the wrestling business and still be able to have at least a serviceable match. Exactly. Yeah. He could carry him with the like eight to 15 minute range match. I'm sure. Yes. Cause I, you know, I have angle on social media and uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine that, that goes to, uh, cause we were talking about the gym and LA fitness and, and he runs into him up at the Robinson one. So Angle's still okay. getting it in and, and, and staying in shape. I'm sure even with uh, six plus neck surgeries and his age and everything else. But like yeah. we always said his entire career, he had the dudes like literally a human machine. So uh, I think he could definitely put on a match with, with Jericho and that's a great call. So we'll see if that goes down. And what I was going to run by you real quick uh, with all this being brought up and going to the show, cause I wasn't sure um, on some past indie shows that you might've been to that I didn't realize, but uh, I don't think you ever saw the box or Kenny Omega live either. Right. Uh, I've not seen Kenny. Um, I have seen the bucks. I've seen the Bucks when they were in Ring of Honor. Gotcha. But they're, I mean, dude, they're still, I mean, if you really think about their roster, like how many guys I haven't seen that wrestle for them, like, you know, trying to think just off the top, like, I don't think I've seen Orange Cassidy wrestle in person. I may have, but it's, if I do, I don't remember it, or it might have been in his previous incarnation in Chikara. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember him. Um, hmm. Which for those that don't know, listen in, because it was a surprise to me that, that you filled Ooh. me in. What was his gimmick in Shikara? Like who was he before Orange Cassidy? Oh, he, yeah. For those who might not know, he was fire ant in Shikara. <laughs> yeah. So you might, might, if you're familiar with Shikara, you're probably familiar with fire ant. 
Uh, and it reminded me too of the Jays. Somebody else I'm super excited to be able to see is one of my favorite tag teams in wrestling too, besides the Lucha Brothers, and that's Santana and Ortiz. So I'm a huge yeah. fan of those dudes. Uh, MJF, another one. You know, like there's there's a bunch of dudes. You never know who you're going to see, and we're going to two fucking shows, so that's going to be absolutely fucking awesome, man. I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be a great time. That's what I, I'll have to look up on the, the Google machines um, what the card was the last time I attended, the, the, the one and only time that AEW did come, because I can't even remember, to be honest with oh, you. Yeah. I know the Bucks wrestled, Dude, but what, I'd be curious to see what, who we saw, you know. What time of year was that that you went? From what I remember, I believe it was the fall, but... It's, you know, throwing the pandemic year and as I always state here on the show, my past concussion issues and things like that, <laughs> the Jays memory is is pretty spotty here and there, especially for, again, being blessed to go to a lot of live wrestling events and things. But, uh, but yeah, I'd have to, to look that all up. OK, well, that's actually currently what I'm doing here. So was that in 2019? I believe so, because. OK, um, yeah, 2020 so was. Here we go. This this is October twenty third, twenty nineteen. There it was. I called the, the fall at least. Hey, yo. So this is the first ever uh, dynamite in Pittsburgh. So uh, they were doing the AEW World Tag Title Tournament. Uh, they had a semifinal match with Private Party versus the Lucha Bros. So that that would have been fucking cool match to see. I remember that was yep. really good. Uh, also, uh, SCU, the team of Scorpio Sky and Frankie Kazarian, uh, fought against Dark Order team of Evil Uno and Stu Grayson. Uh, and they're getting some shine in AEW right now, of course, uh, being part of the Dark Order. Yeah. Oh, Jan- Janela and Kenny Omega. Yeah, that was good. Then the one I remember, the Young Bucks and Best Friends. Yep, absolutely. That's on here. Uh, they did an in-ring interview with Cody. Um, also, Britt Jamie Baker, Hader. of course, had to be on there. Yeah, yeah she, Britt Baker defeated Jamie Hayter. Yep, you got that. And the main event was Pac versus John Moxley. And I remember yes. the crowd was super hot for that match, too. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it brought me back. But yeah, good show, always fun. And as you mentioned, what's real attending live. So, was some unique podcasting to do with our hands on personal accounts of going to the actual TV tapings uh, next week. Can't wait. Absolutely. So expect a little bit more, or I should say a lot more on that next week. Uh, another big thing, it, it, this is almost like impossible to keep up with. That's why uh, I threw something in the notes for us this week that you to help us yeah. out on it. Um, but the, and of course uh, it doesn't work because fucking ESPN's the shits. So there you go guys. But what I'm talking about is NBA free agency. Uh, this has gone absolutely bonkers crazy and uh dude even for me specifically because i'm a knicks fan and i've pretty much got a total view of what they are doing because they spent all their money in a matter of a day pretty much uh so they re-signed nerlin Knowles, uh they re-signed Derek rose uh they re-signed alec burks and they signed evan fournier uh, to a pretty big contract, um, a move that I'm not super fond of. Um, I think that they'll be a good team. They'll definitely go to the playoffs next year unless some crazy injuries or something happen. But I'm not super excited about that uh, to, to begin with. But um, yeah, man, teams are throwing some crazy money around, dude. Jarrett Allen 
signed a five-year, $100 million contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, Carmelo signed a one-year deal with the Lakers. Trevor Ariza signed a one-year deal with the Lakers. Uh, Lonzo Ball agrees to a four-year, $85 million contract with the Chicago Bulls. I think that's going to make the Bulls a lot better, by the way. Uh, you know, I'm not going to read every one of these, but like, man. You say uh, Westbrook and everything going on there with LA? Yeah, West, Westbrook basically is being has been traded off to the Lakers um, to join up with LeBron and Antonio Davis. Um, it looks like... Mello. Yeah, it looks like there's going to be a lot of dudes taking veteran medium or minimum to go there. Uh, I also heard that Victor Oladipo looks like he's going to go there for a minimum. Um, That's, dude, I have not been a super fan of the super teams in the uh, NBA. The only one that I really liked out of all of them was probably the Warriors. Um, but I really don't like this. I'm not a fan of the Lakers to begin with, but like, this is awful to me. Like this is going to ruin the fucking season next year. Uh, unless another team does the same thing and then it's still going to ruin the season, but you might get like a good finals. Right. I mean, that's why I always say about basketball in particular as a sport, because you only have five starters, you know, as opposed to say football is like the opposite. You have 11 players on offense, 11 players on defense, completely different from each other. That's 22 players, plus that in special teams. You know, I mean, it would be damn near impossible to put together an NFL super team. You know, you might get like five super athletes or something if you're lucky. Yeah. But you wouldn't be able to do it under the cap. In the yeah, NFL. and it's just different. It's, I think it's just worth mentioning. You know, it's, you know, with five starters, you know, you can load up. And, and that's that's what LA's doing, you know, with LeBron at the helm there, making, making all these moves. Uh, I'm sure you caught the... The biggest um, extension deal uh, of all time because Steph Curry agreed to a four-year, $215 million contract extension, which makes him the first player to ever sign two $200 million-plus deals. And and there ain't too many people that deserve it more than he does, man. Dude's legitimately the greatest shooter of all time. Like, how can you argue with that? You know what I mean? Warriors fans ain't arguing with that. No, not at all. I mean, between pro wrestling, like we've been mentioning, now the NBA, uh, there's some stuff to get in with the NFL. I mean, things are, you know, uh, that's what that's what a year pandemic will do, man. Things are shaking up coming out of it with uh, with things opening up a little bit, although we'll digress there to kind of the two steps forward, one step back of, of American culture right now with everything. But hopefully, knock on wood, hey, you know me, I'm an optimist and we're hoping for the best that we're going to stay on our path of normality and be able to have our freedom to go out and about. But, uh, you know, going with this, the point is there's some really wild shit going on all over the place from, from movies to sports to pro wrestling, you know, things are, things are getting wild here. Yeah. And, uh, that's, I guess the perfect way to bring this one up the J, uh, Miami dolphin player, Adam Shaheen, uh, who's been a pretty vivid anti-masker and anti, uh, vax, I suppose, um, has caught in COVID-19. So, um, you know, what can you say other than like, dude, like people really need to like get it together. It's kind of a shame at this point that we're, we're talking about this over a year later um, in a way where it's like, come on, man, like people should really go do their part. Like it's not that hard. 
you know, you know, as a goal to get to herd immunity and to get to herd immunity, you have to have cooperation. And that's just something we're not seeing very much of, um, you know, in the modern age, but it is what it is. As we say here on what's real, we're all about the fun and don't delve into the politics side of things. So, uh, definitely a story worth mentioning, but it is no surprise to the J, you know, if you're not going to comply, then you're going to open yourself up to uh, getting this virus, which happened in this specific situation here. Yep. So that is what it is, but also kind of sticking in the the sports realm here. This is a amazing, amazing story. Uh, I sent this to you and we, it, we both kind of had a similar reaction to it, but I'm talking about the story. Uh, this was released through the sportsrush.com, um, where Allen Iverson, uh, thought he was getting high with Biggie, just, you know, typical smoking chronic type thing, but it was hash. And, 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 uh, <laughs> mentioned it was for the first time in his life that he was getting. High. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. so, and of course, if you guys don't know, uh, chronic and hash are very different in terms of what kind of high they can get you. Uh, hash is much more concentrated version and is loaded with THC. Uh, when Allen Iverson was sharing a hotel one day with Biggie, he thought he was having chronic, uh, the less potent version. However, he had accidentally gotten his hands on some hash instead, of, and well, his trip was not ideal. Iverson was wearing a shirt that was a parody to Janet Jackson's famous 1993 Rolling Stone cover, uh, except instead of Janet Jackson, an alien cartoon replaced her. Uh, after scoring some of the hash, Iverson was freaking out. Why? He couldn't see Janet Jackson's face on the T-shirt, and so he started panicking, uh, wondering if she, if she had suddenly disappeared. Iverson would recall, quote, I just remember going to the bathroom. I'm looking in the mirror at the shirt, and I noticed that the shirt did not have her face. It had an alien face on her body. I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm tripping. I'm wiping the shirt off to try and reveal her face and everything. I'm thinking like that's supposed to be her, but it's this alien cartoon character. So basically <laughs> he was higher than shit. And uh, that that's a great fucking story. I'm glad that awesome, that's gotten man. out. Yeah, I love it. The, the headline with his quote and it just says it all. I smoked hash thinking it was the chronic and thought I saw Janet Jackson. <laughs> it's great. Dude, had you ever indulged in hash in your life? Yep. It's. So have I. Uh, it's definitely potent, but like it wasn't anything that like you know blew my mind. Like well, in the we're way he's we're talking. old pros. Hey, uh, if you're if yeah, you're smoking, you, know, you never smoked before in your life. Yeah, you're you're smoking with Biggie and some some hash for the first time ever. Yeah, that that that'll get you. But but yeah, I think by the time I uh, was had hash in my hands, you know, I smoked plenty of of normal marijuana and things like that. So I was ready to handle it. Hey, yo. Agreed. So uh, this is something that I thought was really cool. Uh, I was watching the NBA draft last week. And uh, they did this really cool thing where, uh, and I'll quote uh, the commissioner, uh, Adam Silver of the NBA. Uh, it is my honor to now announce that with the next pick in the 2021 NBA draft, the NBA selects Terrence Clark from the University of Kentucky, uh, who was a player that had passed away in a tragic car accident. 
uh, and looked like he would have been a major, uh, major name that we would have been talking about had not that happened. Uh, he would have been drafted most likely into the NBA. So they did that and brought his family up on the stage. Uh, an extremely nice and classy move by the NBA, which they do a great job at stuff like that. Yeah, very classy to a very sad situation. I mean, you know, brutal, brutal story. Just uh, uh, that's why they call them accidents. Just a complete accident. You know, no foul play or, or drugs or alcohol or anything like that involved. Just a, a car accident at 19 years old. Uh, when he's preparing to be drafted and, and passing away at 19. So a uh, big, big thing to do for, for his family. Cause he yeah, has such a tragic story, but at least, you know, this gives some semblance of positivity uh, to his family to, to go through that. Like you mentioned, he brings them, brings them up and they have the NBA hats on and he gets announced and the crowd was chanting Terrence. So, uh, you know, uplifting story with, with a tragic situation surrounding it. And uh, to continue that kind of theme, uh, Recently, there was named KMD MF Doom Way uh, for the fallen rapper MF Doom, real name Daniel Dumile, who had passed away uh, just, you know, fairly recently. And uh, this was just a really cool honor. This is in his hometown of Long Beach, New York. Uh, And I'm a huge MF Doom fan. So that's just something I thought was super cool that I wanted to bring up on the show as well. Yeah, I love I love when they do that. They've done it with a few people in Pittsburgh, but it's a it's just a, a unique cool way to remember somebody and give somebody a tribute. Because at the end of the day, what's the difference between it being Josephine Way, you know, to, to yeah. be named after MF Doom? It's a cool thing. Yeah, and there there's been a couple other rappers definitely that have uh, streets named after them. I know that uh, Nipsey Hussle, uh, the Notorious B.I.G., and of course Big Pun all have streets named after them. Uh, I know uh, Fife Dog from Tribe Called Quest has something like that as well. Uh, and I, I just like that, especially when New York does it for, you know, fallen hip hop artists and stuff like I just think that's really cool. So because yeah, it's 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 not easy to do. And I, I read the in the article, they said that uh, this happened after extensive lobbying from Dr. Patrick C. Graham, who's a professor in uh, a public and social sector leader. But he, the big thing was that he was a former schoolmate of MF Doom. So you know, he, he lobbied for it and, and got the, the name of the street for him, which is awesome. And that's really cool, too, because it's like, dude, I know of somebody that I was friends with passed away. Uh, and I was able to do something like that as a tribute to them. Exactly. Uh, yep. That That's very cool. So I definitely would 100% back that completely. So shout out and rest in peace to MF Doom always. Doom forever. So... Uh, this is something that I saw the J that I was like, dude, this is perfect for us. And that was a vice.com article uh, that is inside the business of sneaker botting. Uh, and a botter explains how he snags sneakers before they sell out. Uh, and this is basically about uh, a YouTuber and a sneaker fanatic known as Botter Boy Nova. Uh, he's had an incredibly lucrative year with resale prices going through the roof. Uh, his sneaker bot army has helped him score some highly sought after shoes. Uh, in today's 60 billion global uh, sneaker market, Botter Boy Nova found a way to capitalize even further. Uh, quote, the way I would describe my career is part time botter, full time content creator. Quote, uh, I show people on YouTube how to do it. So and this was kind of going around the Web as you can get rich doing this. 
uh, and Vice was even putting it out there kind of like that. And I seen a lot of pushback on it that I, I sort of agreed with. Um, it is hilarious to me that the people are constantly, and I, by that, I mean, everything from like newspaper articles to things that you'll see on like a news magazine show or something like that about how you, there's all this money in sneakers and there is, we've talked about it many times here on the show. You mentioned it a 60 billion, not 60 million, yes. a $60 billion global sneaker market. And I'm not going to sit here and, and just flat out lie to you people listening and say that like, you're never going to be able to make any money in sneakers because you can absolutely make some cash. But this notion of like, you're going to do this and become this fucking mogul doing it is a goddamn joke. I'm telling everyone that right now, um, you need stupid startup money or stupid connections to do that kind of shit. Uh, people don't understand the other side of the sneaker game. And by that, I'm not talking about this retail resale bullshit. I'm talking about the, the hookups and the relationships and the backdooring that happens. Um, that was all built into sneaker culture from OG sneakerheads. So they are basically telling you as a person who just kind of is into sneakers or whatever, that like, we don't give a fuck about you. Uh, we are here for people who are here for the culture, not just fucking, you know, scalpers and snakes and resellers and, you know, bullshit like that. Uh, and that's why that's also very similar to the world of skateboarding, too. Like they're in, in wrestling, the J, you know, this as well as anybody. There's things built into certain cultures and certain hobbies and certain jobs and certain things to keep the the fuckery out of it, to keep the people who are only there to capitalize on shit or to find stuff out or whatever out of it. And sneakers are no exception. It's really huge in sneakers, in fact. So I think it's hilarious to me when I read articles like this and even when I talk to people that do it successfully, they're not giving you the cheat codes. They're not going to tell you how to do their business. It'd be like, you know, Apple telling you how to fucking do what they did. Like that's never going to happen in any capacity. So it's just, it continually cracks me up with this push of like, you could be a millionaire doing this because it's not going to happen. No, I mean, it's like anything you have to have, like you mentioned, man, like the inside, you have to put in a lot of effort. It's not something like you're just going to start flipping a pair of sneakers and like you said, become some mogul doing this as, as even um, Nova said in the article. So basically, you know, for those that don't know, just, this is like a good, like just break down a couple sentences. A bot is just a piece of software that automates the checkout process. So he went on to say, I have a few thousand tasks. And basically one task is equal to one person trying to get the sneaker. So that's kind of what it breaks down to. But then even in that sentence, which is another reason I bring it up in contrast to what you're saying, hey, uh, I have a few thousand tasks. I mean, this is like a, a full-blown job. You know, you have to sit there and play the game. And, you know, people like us that are really into the sneakers that have the intellectual prowess to at least understand this and maybe make a run at it, just don't have the time. You know, I don't have the time to become a middle-aged sneakerhead mogul you know i'll tell you that no i mean we have jobs and shit so like that's yeah you know, i can't sit like, at home and set up these bots you know yeah we're lucky we have the time to get the stuff that we get you exactly, know what i mean yeah. like that that's asking for a lot sometimes too and you have to go to stupid levels to get it yep and and uh it was cool because the article went on to explain a woman named danica robinson 
uh, who they mentioned on the other end of the technology spectrum from somebody that's botting like Nova. It, she's uh, what's known as a quote unquote thrifter who uses Depop as the middle person between her artistry and her income. So she kind of combines that with her social media presence and, and builds up, you know, being able to flip some, some things and basically do online thrifting. And she actually, you know, makes enough to pay her bills and, you know, it's, it's more of a hobby for her. She's not a mogul as this article states, but she is able to uh, do something that she's passionate about and make some money at it and pay her bills. And that's, so, that's like something we say is like a kind of bottom line, you know? So check this out. Uh, in 2019, definitely before the pandemic, that's something that I was doing uh, periodically. Uh, like I'd hit up thrifts and I would grab shit and I would resell it. And the thing with that stuff that I can tell you for a fact is, it's almost, it's different, but you still have to put in the same type of work. And I mean, you need to know what to find. You need to know what sells. You need to know what the good sizes are. You need to know how to be able to tell fakes. Uh, and you need to be able to just get lucky. And you need to be able to go places a lot to do this. So I had a lot more free time at that point to do stuff like that. And that's a job. And the thing is, there's times where you're driving out of your way to go check places and you find nothing. So, you know, you have to be prepared for that. That's part of that, too. So it is a way that if you do all this, that you can make some nice extra coin. Uh, but it's a lot of work. You have to be diligent. You have to do it all the time. Um, and there's no guarantees. So it's not something that you can do as a consistent job, but it is a good way to put some some change in your pocket if you know what you're doing and you live in a good area to get certain things because there's some thrift stores that sell nothing but trash because people there don't either don't have anything or the place is rooted or uh, it's just not a good area for stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you're interested, you have some free time and you could figure this out. It's definitely a, a cool way, uh, especially if, like you said, you are a true sneakerhead, not just some greedy person trying to make money off of this type of thing. Uh, you can supplement your income pretty pretty well doing a passion like like Danica here that we mentioned from this article in the, the Vice News piece. And it's this kind of stuff is happening with a lot of things, to be honest with you. Like uh, there's a lot of collectibles that this stuff happens with. Um, there's a lot of, you know, record stuff like that, that, that is like this. Um, there's just, the, you know, reselling's become a thing all over the place for almost any type of, you know, like, I mean, dude, during the pandemic, we've seen people doing it with like supplies. So that doesn't surprise me either. Um, it's just creating an unnecessary middleman because companies like to create false rarity by, producing 50 of something they could have made 5,000 of. So, which is also weird too, because these giant corporations are giving money away uh, to random people that they could be earning themselves because I might want a pair of sneakers that they don't have to sell. And they were only 190 retail. And then another dude will sell me a pair for a thousand dollars. Like that's a lot of money. Nike could have lost out on. You know, it's like, uh, at the outset of the pandemic, Tim, the penis face Johnson made like six figures fucking hawking toilet paper online. Yeah, it's ridiculous, but that's the nature of the beast with people. So, uh, and also too, kind of speaking of sneakers, this is another pretty big, uh, thing that, that has just happened. And I'm, I'm, I was really surprised by this because so Foot Locker, of course, is 
one of the biggest names in in the world of sneakers. They've been around forever. It's where a lot of people got introduced to sneakers for the first time at their local mall at the Foot Locker. Um, and they've gone through a, a restructuring over like the last couple of years. So there was a bunch of other companies that were under them. You know, like whenever you go to like places like Foot Action and stuff, they're even though they don't, they, you know, they look like another store. It's really an extension of Foot Locker. So. Uh, but they've been kind of closing those types of places. But recently they acquired two new shoe chains for over a billion dollars. Um, and one of them really surprised the hell out of me whenever I read this. But uh, this is from Hypebeast.com. Foot Locker is buying two smaller shoe chains uh, in deals totaling, totaling approximately $1.1 billion in cash. The company will acquire the California-based outlet chain WSS for $750 million and the Japanese streetwear boutique franchise Atmos for $360 million in two separate deals. Uh, the purchase is part of Foot Locker's effort to expand their business beyond malls and within the Asian sneaker market. While sneaker sales have been up for the company due to pandemic-influenced shopping habits, its physical stores have been challenged by the lack of foot traffic in malls and an overall shift to consumer shopping online. Uh, Atmos is a really big name uh, in the world of sneakers. They also do a lot of uh, collaborations and stuff with other companies, specifically Nike. And those collaborations have a ton of hype and go for a ton of money. Uh, I do like some of the stuff that Atmos does. It's also kind of uh, like many other ones. Uh, many of the other streetwear companies out there have their uh, connections to skateboarding as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's cool if it gets more eyes on the Atmos brand, because I think that that's kind of a cool brand uh, to begin with. Uh, so good for them. Uh, but I don't know what that means as far as they're being owned by Foot Locker now. Would it, generally speaking, that's not a good thing when a big corporation that's, buys. A that's what I was like going to say. Yep. That's the thing. It's just another corporation, you know, buying these successful smaller outlets. And we always mention that, man, within, you know, modern American business where you're not supposed to have monopolies. And there are just so many too big to fail companies and corporations out there that just eats everything up that they can. I mean, yeah, yeah they, they, like you mentioned, man, they, you know, deals totaling approximately 1.1 billion. Like it's nothing, you know, we're talking again, we're talking billions, not millions. That's, that's where we're at here in 2021. Yep. It's, it's huge stuff, man. And it's, it's crazy, you know, how often things like this happen. So, right. Uh, you actually put me onto this, the Jay. This is really cool. This is on IGN.com. An article, uh, it's the story behind Grand Theft Auto 3's groundbreaking rat radio station, Chatterbox FM. Uh, I think most people even remotely familiar with, with this game are familiar with this. Uh, it was always one of the coolest features of the game, I thought. Uh, and that's, in case you guys don't know, uh, whenever you play Grand Theft Auto games, uh, when you're in the car, music plays and it's all popular music and it's usually in tune with whatever time period the game takes place in. Um, but th this is one of the things that was really cool is you could kind of change radio stations to different types of music and stuff while you're playing. Uh, it was a really popular feature, uh, so much so that through the years we've seen them release the soundtracks on CD and stuff like that into streaming and 
you know, it's it's a big thing for gamers. I think it's a big thing for a lot of people into the game. So as they said on IGN, listening to the radio while driving around through the boroughs of Liberty City is one of Grand Theft Auto 3's greatest pleasures because of the licensed music, eccentric personalities, and ridiculous ads. It's up there with trying to fly the Dodo or rampaging through the streets in an armored tank. But while there were a host of entertaining stations to listen to, uh, one became a defining element of weaving through traffic in GTA 3. That's Chatterbox FM. In contrast to the other stations, Chatterbox didn't play any music. Instead, it broadcasted an hour-long talk show pitting its presenter, the singularly named Laszlo, against a string of obscene colors. Grand Theft Auto previously included radio stations full of licensed music to listen to, and Grand Theft Auto uh, 2 introduced DJ banner and commercials to the mix, but Chatterbox brought a new real-life radio style to the virtual airwaves. The show provided goofy, satirical commentary on early 21st century American culture through the cavalcade of guests Laszlo interviewed. The conversations offered unique insight into the bizarre world beyond the events of the game and hinted at what all the pedestrians you passed by, or maybe more accurately for the mayhem-minded ran over, might be thinking about when they weren't running away from our bat-wielding protagonist. Um, this year marks 20 years since players first got the chance to tune into Chatterbox FM. So to celebrate, they spoke to all the people who brought the station to life. Uh, of course, telling you all the different information and how they kind of came up with this stuff and everything else. A uh, really, really, really good article. If you guys are even remotely interested in this, uh, recommend looking up Grand Theft Auto 3's Chatterbox FM on IGN.com. But thanks for passing that along, the Jay, because this is pretty amazing. For sure. Yeah, because that's what I was going to mention. Definitely check out the the article. I mean, that's a podcast topic in and of itself to, to break the whole thing down. And, you know, we could go into some GTA history if we had wanted to. But yeah, I just wanted to bring that that article to your attention because uh, reading through it, I was just like, yeah, this is just such a cool story because as even kind of the subtitle of the article states, the iconic radio station in GTA 3 was slapdash together but the end result was magical. And as we both know, man, sometimes a lot of the times that's when the best stuff happens, you know, with yeah. improving and in, in movies or pro wrestling or, you know, the things that aren't supposed to happen that, you know, even in your personal life, like those classic nights out you have that like, man, we were just going out to hang at our buddy Gus's and it turned into this crazy, like movie esque night, you know, out of nowhere and you just don't expect it, you know? And that was kind of the thing with, with Chatterbox. And, and it brought me back to, because, you know, basically for those that don't know in the history of GTA, uh, GTA started off on uh, as a PC game, you know, before the, the console editions and things like that. And I had first been introduced to it in, in college, you know, to date myself back before I even attended uh, state college in Penn state's main campus. I went to Altoona for a couple years first to Penn state Altoona. So that this is going back to the days in visiting my friends in the dorms because I left lived off campus uh, from freshman year on. But going into the dorms, it brings me back to the first Grand Theft Autos, which was this top down game version. But still, at the, you know, it's like anything for the time. It was really revolutionary and cool. Grand Theft Auto 3, which is where uh, Chatterbox debuted that particular game. That was the first one that really blew up the franchise that became the first true open world video game experience on consoles and just blew up the the GTA franchise to being the most successful video game franchise in history. And it brought me back to as as those days, I'm sure you'll remember, hey, you know, playing I'd had it down in, in my parents' basement 
uh, post-college after I lived there for a few years before moving out on my own, or actually it was like just a couple years. And uh, I basically just dwelled in my parents' basement and uh, I have just hours upon hours of GTA three memories. And, uh, you know, this brought me back to all that. And I, I remember, you know, I, I bumped the music for a while, but I'd always go back to chatterbox cause it cracked me up and you would just leave that on and go do your dirt in the GTA world. And, and again, that was, I think the main thing for myself personally to this article, just bringing me back to those days of playing GTA and those post-college years and in our, our times in the basement and all that. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, Dude, those games were totally revolutionary, even to somebody back then that was more than a, a you know, casual gamer, you know, like I am now. Um, they, they were always impressive. Uh, that's one of the reasons why it felt like, too, as they came out, that they were getting more and more and more realistic and not just from graphically. I'm talking about the way that they felt like everything about the game. Uh, like they tighten that up pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, that's one of those games are classics. So exactly. yeah, it was such a fun game. That's one of those ones where, you know, I always say I'm moderate or attempt to be moderate in everything I do from my gaming to my ex, you know, everything. And, uh, you know, kind of can poke fun at some of these, the, the kids nowadays, Hey, you know, the, the rocking chair, Jay got to throw out there gaming for 10 hours straight or more. But GTA three, man, you could lose like, I, you know, I'd be playing it just into it. It's just fun as shit. And before you know it, you're like, holy shit, I've been playing this for six fucking straight hours. Yeah, absolutely. That was dude. That was one of the problems that I first had with GTA when I first started playing it. I'm like, dude, exactly. Have, I'm playing this with time that I don't have. So <laughs> like, yep. yeah, I'm always apprehensive just because of that, though, because I know they'll always be great games. So uh, dude, this is a huge story. Uh, we were even talking about this uh, recently when we got together in person. Uh, but denofgeek.com had this article and it talks about the Scarlett Johansson and uh, Disney lawsuit. Uh, she recently filed suit against Disney over an alleged breach in her contract. The immediate firestorm in the media and more tellingly on social media was intense. Uh, she's basically suing them over you know, the streaming rights because it was supposed to go into the theater and it didn't. And basically the reason why this is such a big deal, because whatever the decision may be legally for this is going to change movies potentially forever and how they're presented. Um, it could be a good thing. It could also be a bad thing. Uh, we're in a weird gray area with that kind of stuff too. Um, I think she's totally within her right doing it. And I understand why she's doing it. I also think it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, the way that some of these companies just do stuff, you know what I mean? Like a producer pays to make a movie and people go out and make that movie. And then a studio picks it up and lords over the whole thing and acts like they made it all. Like it's, it's weird. Like, yes, they bought it. Okay. To be able to release it. But just because like, you know, Again, you can go out and you can buy a gun, right? But just because you go out and buy a gun doesn't mean you can use it however the fuck you want. And it's kind of the same thing with that kind of stuff. Yeah, we, we all here at the What's Real podcast know how Hey Yelp feels about the house of mouse. So we won't we won't go too diatribe into that. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because like you said, the implications uh, for the future of kind of how Hollywood is going to work um, post pandemic is is definitely very interesting and stemming from this. Because uh, as it states on the Den of Geek article, as you mentioned, is that in addition to Disney's public response being actually shockingly scathing, it 
also largely seemed to evade Johansson's legal assertions. Instead, the studio aggressively targeted Johansson's character, seemingly shaming her for daring to bring up profits during such troubled times. And of course, they're going to play the victim, fucking Disney. The lawsuit is especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, wrote the company, which reopened its theme parks in July 2020. The response also went on uh, to note Johansson already earned $20 million in upfront salary on the film. So you got to love that. Uh, you know, how, how dare you bring up profits during such troubled times, Char- uh, Scarlett? Oh, by the way, she she was already paid $20 million upfront salary. Like, let's just yeah. throw her salary out there. It's, it, it's like, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> totally like, how dare you bring up profits at a time like this, especially <laughs> considering you made $20 million. The last, it's like, Oh, fuck you. You just did the same thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, fuck these corporations. Hey, yeah, and, you know, it, get your Scarlet. I keep calling her Scarlet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're no, on a first name Jesus basis Christ. with her. We're, we're cool. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, dude, this, the sad fact of the matter, we, we basically said this uh, when we were talking about it off the air. Uh, you know, I could very easily see them just settling with her and then being like, cool, you're done. We're not working with you again. You know, I mean, it won't be the end of her career or anything like that, but. You know, a lesser actress wouldn't be able to do something like that. So good for her. Well, that's what goes on, as you alluded to, with this kind of being the the beginning of this, is that, of course, after Johansson's lawsuit, uh, Emma Stone, who starred in Cruella, that was the first live action 21 film that Disney put on Disney+. Plus. So she put in a statement that she, quote unquote, is currently weighing her options. And they also go on to mention uh, Emily Blunt, who could also, uh, you know, do a similar thing depending on the current rollout of how Jungle Cruise, the new movie she's in with The Rock, worked. Where it's funny, it says in the uh, the article. Meanwhile, Dwayne Johnson was conspicuously enthusiastic on social media about Jungle Cruise's box office performance this morning. So the, the Rock don't give a fuck. <laughs> he's doing everything. Yeah, he's everything he touches turns <laughs> turns to gold. He's yep. like, you know, we made we made thirty million yesterday. We're good. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's it's going to be interesting to see kind of where the ball falls with that shit. <laughs> like like we both said, man, it's really going to change the game. And it's, you know, there's other people waiting in the wings for the decision to kind of decide on what they're going to do and how they're going to handle it. So time will tell, and I'm sure we'll have some more updates on that as we go here week to week. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up quickly and selfishly is because I am a huge fan of of a movie from director Ken Russell called The Devils. Uh, It stars Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, It's a pretty controversial movie. And I saw that the BBC.com did a big, big article, uh, specifically Adam Scovelli, or Scovell, I'm sorry, uh, talking about uh, the movie itself, uh, the fact that it's been super controversial for years, it's a movie that uh, to some people would be sacrilege, I suppose, uh, is their issue with it. Um, but it is a fucking masterpiece. Um, they had cut a bunch of stuff out of the movie. And at some point they found all this footage. And it's some of the most controversial stuff. And they went back and put the stuff back in the movie. But Warner Brothers, who owns the rights to it, basically are just doing everything they can to not release it. Um, it's it, it showed up through the years on on grainy stuff and really bad quality, you know, bootlegs and things like that. There is a company out there that has a really good version of it, but I am not really comfortable with putting their name out there uh, for that. But I have it. And it's great. Um, 
but it is something that more people need to see. Um, it, it's a fantastic movie. Ken Russell's pretty much always been lauded as a really talented visionary and a, and a great director. Um, and it, to me, it's easily his best work without a doubt. So, um, you know, it does deserve some recognition and, and at least have it out there for people to be seen. So I appreciated this article. So I was going to ask you uh, when we brought this up as a topic, because it popped up on Shutter was, I guess, the Shutter version of the Devils yeah. that was up was the edited. The theatrical version has always been available. That's the one that is right. truncated a little bit as they speak about. That, the that's article. the one that was on on Shutter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it's still a great movie, um, and I, you know, I appreciate it getting its attention any way that it can. Uh, even in the truncated form, it's a really, really great movie. Uh, but you know, the stuff that was taken out was always meant to be put back in, uh, according to Ken Russell and what he wanted to do with it. So they had the original editor go in and do so because Ken Russell had had obviously passed by that point uh, when they found the footage. So, you know, if somebody's going to go through all that painstaking work to kind of restore it the way the director wanted to, I think the studio should, at least, you know, because it's not like it's some bullshit movie that nobody cares about. It's a really important movie and it's a really well done movie. Uh, and it's just going to be forgotten. And I hate when a studio has control of something and just because they're not a fan of the content in the movie, uh, they feel the need to make sure that nobody can get their hands on it, which is complete. Then sell it off to somebody because somebody would buy it and, and release it themselves. But they, you know, that's the thing. They don't want to give away money, but they also don't want to do this because it's a, you know, it's a censorship issue and it's bullshit. Yeah, because as I mentioned, of course, Ken Russell was devastated by America's decision to release a butchered version of his film. And then, you know, it goes on to talk about this Mary White House that just had it yeah. for him, you know, more more BBC shit because, you know, we've talked about video nasties before and how the UK is with, with a lot of their censorship, especially in the past there. And, and she was quoted as saying that the thing about the devils is that at the higher quality it was, the worst the blasphemy could have been. Uh, White House suggested this in the 1995 documentary Empire of the Censors. High quality doesn't exclude blasphemy. Blasphemy is blasphemy, full stop. And, uh, you know, it goes on to say the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, cut further still for the U.S. release of the 111-minute British cut, cutting it down to 108 minutes of a U.S. cut, in particular, removing any imagery showing pubic hair. That's how, like, how fucking ironic is that, too, to say about, you know, somebody acting like a child? Like, you know, everybody has pubes, man. Yeah, and this Not is a movie in the world. for adults, too, which is beyond right. ridiculous. And it has some amazing performances. Vanessa Redgrave and, of course, Oliver Reed are both brilliant. Uh, it's a very amazing movie. Like, you've seen it, the J, even in the, the truncated version. And I'm sure right. you understand where I'm coming from. Like, it's just a really, really impressive piece. So that's why I love it. Yeah. And, dude, I would, like, dude, imagine what a company like Criterion would do with that. Oh, amazing. You know what I mean? So uh, it's definitely something that I that I, I hope more people could see at some point uh, in the future. So, uh, also, and before we go to break, there's a couple things here. This is our last story. And then I got a question that I wanted to ask you about the J. Uh, but Friday the 13th legal battle is over. Uh, the franchise has been resolved. Thank God. And that's all according to Corey Feldman, by the way. <laughs> I was going to mention dot, 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 according to Corey Feldman. Because he has been through the last few years kind of uh, jockeying for position to play the role of Tommy Jarvis again. 
a role that he probably hasn't played since he was 12. Um, so I don't think that's going to work. I don't really think that anybody is currently, and put it this way, even if they were interested in picking up the Tommy Jarvis storyline, Corey Feldman's not going to play him. So (laughs) sorry to break that news, Corey, if you're listening, which you're not, but (laughs) nobody's really listening to you either. So (laughs) yeah, he was in some interview with uh, movie web and was talking about it. And, you know, if, if you're asking like, well, where, where does, you know, Corey's source come from? Like, why is he saying this, that the legal battles of, of Friday, the 13th seem resolved. He simply says, interestingly enough, some guy came up to me at a party. This is true two weeks ago and said he has resolved the rights issues. He's a lawyer and he has resolved the rights issues around Friday the 13th. Like, yeah, good. Some, again, some guy came up to me at a party. (laughs) Yeah. That's a totally reasonable source. Ironically, he was smoking hash with Alan Iverson and (laughs) the lawyer that he saw was not real. (laughs) Good call. So yeah, I don't think we're going to see much movement on that. It's very possible that they have uh, settled the lawsuit, but I'll wait for a better source on that than uh, Corey Feldman. So Exactly. We'll have to see. But the question that I have for you, the Jay, and it's hard to believe that, you know, and by the time you guys hear this, it's already going to happen. So Thursday night this week, as we record here on a Tuesday, uh, what are you thinking about the Hall of Fame game? The Steelers and the Cowboys, the very first preseason game to start off the NFL season this year. The big thing is we're going to find out if Mason Rudolph got any better. After he got hit in the head with a helmet. (laughs) You're right about that. Uh, But I will say this, man. Have you been paying attention to the stuff with the Steelers training camp and shit so far? And what like the good word is on people and shit yet? A little bit. Yeah, because I've, you know, it's at Heinz Field this year as opposed to uh, where it's normally uh, takes place. But I mean, what, what isn't? weird these days, you know, with everything going on, of course. So, but, but yeah, the, to answer your question, Hey, Ed, I've, I've heard, you know, bits and pieces in the local media. So have you heard how well Dwayne Haskins is apparently taking to the team after not really like coming in and not really doing much to start? Cause he needed to learn the playbook. But like, once he learned the playbook uh, I've heard, he's looked really good. And the thing is, is I haven't heard a whole lot about Mason Rudolph. So I'm just assuming with him, it's pretty much business as usual. And business for usual is hint for him is not being the starting quarterback for the Steelers, even if he is supposedly going to start this game and play most of the first half for whatever reason. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, there's only so much you can really take from exhibition games, especially the very first thing of the year and being part of the, the Hall of Fame game in particular. So, you know, I, but again, with with everything going on and just the way things are right now, uh, especially as far as the first quarter, maybe first half goes, I'm definitely interested in checking it out this Thursday. Yeah, same here. I'll definitely probably watch some of it to see what, you know, I'd like to see what Haskins does. So I probably might watch more than I even think I will. So. Exactly. Yeah. Check them out. Absolutely. So we got to take our first commercial break here, guys. And when we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking about the very first season of Masters of the Universe Revelations, brand new to Netflix. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. 
Join us next week for episode 81 of the What's Real podcast. Of course, we're going to take a look at HBO's Hard Knocks with the season premiere. And us gaming nerds are going to check out a newer documentary on Netflix. It's High Score, episodes one through three. And of course, we're going to be talking about AEW Dynamite and Rampage as What's Real is going to AEW Live. And then the most explosive segment in podcasting continues next week with episode 81's return of Thursday Night Prime and the ultimate warrior in firepower. Come on, Herman. Sorry, guys. I was, you know, daydreaming again as I do. This is Herman James with the Witch Row Podcast. Here to talk about Goose or Goose 81, as I always do, where the guys talk about funny things, such as the South Park guys purchasing Casa Bonita and super yachts filled with hookers. Get them out of here, the J. All that, all that, and much more next week on episode 81 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time to get into Masters of the Universe Revelation. Uh, just premiered first season on July 23rd on Netflix. Uh, brought to you by program creator and executive producer Kevin Smith. Uh, which is, uh, I think, surprised a lot of people. And we do have a pretty recognizable cast. Uh, we have people like Chris Wood, of course, Harley Quinn Smith, Lena Headley, Mark Hamill, Sarah Michelle Geller, Tiffany Smith, and uh, Alan Oppenheimer shows up in this one as well. And uh, there was five episodes here. And uh, so basically for us to talk about this, guys, there's going to be some spoilers. So if you haven't watched this yet, you're you're going to want to. Um, so the time for spoilers is up now. Here beep, we go. Beep, 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 beep. So, dude, in the first episode, they pretty much surprisingly kill off He-Man. <laughs> uh, weird fucking choice, um, because I'm pretty sure that anybody that tunes in to watch this is going to want to watch him. Now, with that being said, OK, well, there's always Skeletor, right? No, because they have him trapped or or they make you feel like he's dead uh, as well at the beginning. And uh, yeah, so there's no fucking He-Man and there's no fucking Skeletor. And what you get is Sarah Michelle Gellar playing Tila, getting her own run of a story, basically. Uh, which we do see uh, appearances from He-Man and Skeletor again uh, as the, towards the end, I should say, of the series. But, dude, uh, you know, that's a big problem for me right off the bat. Yeah, very unique, risky, creative choice there uh, from Kevin Smith and his team. Uh, the Jay must say on the outset of everything, hey, you know, one of the reasons that you and I did even want to talk about this was because, especially for myself growing up as a child of the 80s, my first big obsession with toys was with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I wanted all the figures, you know, at, at the time, you know, you, you talk about how different things are because my son Jace, being a big pro wrestling fan right now as he is, has all the figures. Uh, thanks to Hey Y'all, 
for <laughs> Uncle Hay for uh, helping them out there with with a bunch as well. And those things, as you know, man, you know some of them can be upwards of of thirty dollars or more. And back back in the day, I remember having to beg my mom for a five dollar He Man. You know, Dude. they were they were five dollar figures at the time in the in the early eighties there. Are you aware that they there's like a retro He-Man like that are it's the same thing as the old ones pretty much that are out yep. at stores now? Uh, they're like fifteen yep, bucks I, a piece. They look really cool. It's just a wormhole. I don't want to fall down. I was just gonna say I took your advice as far as just adding more collecting, so I kind of stay away from the figure collecting because I'll fall down the the wormhole like you just mentioned. But I have seen all that. It's it's pretty cool shit. But well, but dude, again, yeah, this <laughs> this was near and dear to my heart. Is the bottom line this this entire world and franchise, if you will? And they put out a first series of them that almost got me because it's just Skeletor and He Man, and I'm like, well, I could just get those two, and then I'm like, no, nah, that's, that's how they get you exactly. And there's no way I'm doing that. So just to give you guys a, a quick rundown. Because if you are a big fan of this, now I'll say this too. I loved the cartoon as a kid and I definitely collected the toys. I didn't really remember a lot of this stuff because I was pretty young at that point uh, watching He-Man. But here's the premise for you guys that are hardcore. So Revelation is a direct sequel uh, series to the original series He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Featuring He-Man, Tila, Orko, Cringer, and Men-at-Arms, the story features them as guardians of Castle Greyskull in a battle against Skeletor, Evelyn, Beastman, and the Legions of Snake Mountain. But after a final battle forever fractures Eternia, it's up to Tila to solve the mystery of the missing Sword of Power in a race against time to prevent the end of the universe. Her journey will uncover the secrets of Greyskull at last. Um, for me, a lot of this didn't mean anything. Um, I now granted I watched this stuff as a kid all the time, but I haven't gone back and revisited this. I wasn't super, you know, knowledgeable about what was going to happen and what the storylines were. I did remember the characters and I was frankly upset with some of the choices that they made here with some of the characters who they decided to kill off and things like that. Uh, that was like really odd to me. Um, but yeah, it, it just and because of that, like I will say this, the animation for this is great. It comes across just like the original show with updated animation. And I don't mean futuristic computer shit like it just look it looks exactly like the old show would be. And they just clean it up and there's some other stuff in it that just it works. That looked really good. It's like a, a modern anime upgrade. Yes, that's kind of the way I felt Which, about it. That's a good call. Uh, but dude, this, uh, unfortunately for me was kind of disappointing. I, I didn't really find myself enjoying it. It didn't feel like a nice, like trip down memory lane. I think that maybe their thoughts of what they were doing with this, uh, it was a little bit too ambitious. And I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think it's going to hit the marks for, for people that were true fans of the original. Yeah, see, I, I, I am kind of, uh, unfortunately, a mixed review on it myself. Uh, there's a lot of things that I like. There is a lot of things that I disliked. Uh, some of the, like we mentioned, some of these creative risks, if you will, that they took is credence to them because it's not just like a rehashed kind of thing. They're not trying to appease kids. I think they kind of had in mind 
guys our age that grew up with yeah. the He-Man series to, to maybe, you know, that, that multi-generational kind of aspect of, of us introducing it to our kids. And I, I didn't have time to, to watch this with my son, um, you know, the way I had to watch it for preparation for the podcast, but uh, I did want to go back and rewatch it. So that, that's probably what I'll do. I'll see if he has any interest uh, to kind of rewatch it and pick up on some more stuff and things like that. But I, I would go to the main point being, the, the, the creative risks that they t- took, as you mentioned, kind of taking out He-Man and Skeletor, which I think was was definitely on, you know, obviously on purpose to kind of, you know, I don't know if swerve the audience is the right word, but to just do something completely different, make Tila the key character for this first few, you know, handful of episodes, because I believe this, even though the five episodes that aired from the first season um, kind of wrap things up for now, there are still uh, episodes six through 10 of the first season. So this oh, initial okay. first season story isn't, uh, you know, this is about halfway over. Yeah. So, um, you know, keep that in mind as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they did a lot of, of different things with different characters that we were used to. Uh, another big, I think worth mentioning aspect is the fact that with the kind of way that they told this story with, with Tila and again, the two main uh, characters with Skeletor and He-Man not being as big a part of the first slew of episodes here that evil Lynn and beast man and some of the known quote unquote villainous characters throughout most of the, you know, which would change, but throughout most of these episodes were on the team of the good guys. Yeah, absolutely. So that made it, you know, it made it all kind of different. It was, that's kind of what I liked about it. It's like, it's, it's hard to explain. Hey Ed, but it's like, I kind of liked it and I kind of did not and, and again, that's what kind of gave me like the mixed review kind of indifferent feeling. It felt like to me, this was the second season. And like, you know what I mean? Like they basically needed to like bring back and reestablish all of the original characters and kind of like let you go on a journey with them and then do this story. You know and what throw I mean? The curveballs. Yeah, they just went right for the curveballs. Yeah, and I just don't think that. Like, I, dude, I want to revel a little bit in the fact that I'm watching He Man. You know what I mean? Or not He Man, Masters of the Universe, but still, like, that's what you want to see, right? So, like, deliver on what you're gonna do. It's what I always say. Don't like, don't promise to deliver something and then give me something completely different. That's gonna make me mad. And that's kind of how I felt about this. Right. I think they did the uh, I have the power, the classic, you know, thing where Prince Adam turns into He-Man. That's like his whole gimmick, of course, with the sword of power. I think they did that twice, maybe three times, you know, back in the day. That was every episode. Of course, it was like the the big thing. Yeah. Know, like the build up to it. So but but again, at least, you know, I, I give them respect for being, you know, trying to be different you know, with, with a beloved franchise and beloved characters. So, uh, you know, I got a shout out too. This is just a funny, you know, personal bullet point here regarding this, uh, you know, and, and a shout out to, uh, to our friends that joined us. We had a, a big, what's uh, real, uh, get together on Saturday at the J compound and, uh, us and the guys were hanging out poolside and had a beautiful night here in Pittsburgh and had a blast. Like I mentioned, Hey Ed, I haven't last laughed that uh, much in a long time. i face was hurting on Sunday the next day with all our boys, you know, just us cracking each other up. Uh, but one of our friends is why I mentioned that it is here. Uh, we mentioned on the show that we're reviewing uh, this particular uh, season uh, here on Netflix of He-Man Revelation. And our one buddy, Guillermo, 
had already beat us to the punch and had watched all the episodes, even though me and Hey Ed weren't fully through watching the season for the podcast yet by Saturday and goes on to spoil it for us. Like, yeah, how crazy is it? They basically kill off He-Man. <laughs> like, everybody dude. at the party is like, yeah, Mo. <laughs> yeah. So throwing that out there, that was funny. But, but yeah, back to the show. Um, you know, like you mentioned, really, really good cast, really good animation. Uh, it just maybe missed the mark with with some of the the creative liberties basically that they took in in making some pretty drastic changes here from the he man that we knew and loved. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I'm curious to see what other people are gonna think about this. I haven't really seen a lot of online reaction and stuff like that from it so far. Um, but you know, just because it wasn't for me doesn't mean that other people won't like it. Uh, I just. You know, I would probably watch the second half of the season anyway, just to see where it goes from here. But depending on that, I might be completely out uh, at that point. But I, I wasn't really overly impressed with anything other than the animation and the cast was good. But the direction that they decided to take this one through the first uh, so many episodes was just ugh, no thanks. Well, going right with you on that. Hey, you know, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, we always say it, it is a cool kind of way to rate things because you you know they kind of the way they put together you know varying different critics opinions and things to to put together their tomato meter and things and, and this kind of tells the story the tomato meter is certified fresh that's 46 critic ratings at a whopping 96 percent on the uh rotten tomatoes tomato meter however the audience score from 4,539 user ratings 37 percent so it's one of those things, as I always mention, always kind of mixed reviews nowadays with so many opinions in, in the open of the Internet to have so many varying opinions. But nonetheless, that kind of tells the story that a lot of critics and things like that were into it. But uh, a lot of the audience members uh, weren't as big on it. Yeah, I think they're going to have to do a lot to rebound here in the second half of the season, because uh, if this is the best they got. It's not going to be enough to to keep me. And I would honestly, like, if somebody asked me, like, you know, oh, I heard the first parts up, would you recommend it? I'd be like, not really. You know, like, maybe the second half will be good. I don't know. But right now, I would probably tell most people to wait until the second half is available because the, the first half doesn't leave the best taste in your mouth. Yeah, and I was trying to research when those episodes drop, and there's no real word on that naturally time as we record so yeah but uh, i'm kind of with you man like i mentioned i'm kind of a a mixed review which uh you know i would give on our rating scale that we do with movies here on what's real the five star scale uh at this point i'd probably give he-man uh two and a half yeah i mean if i was gonna do like just to rate the first half i'd probably say about two stars it's just yeah you know and that's just for the technical stuff because other than that i didn't i didn't really find it too compelling so uh, but got got a shout it out. Hey, yeah, cause I'm probably a Homer for him, but Mark Hamill as Skeletor. Yeah. Which we didn't get enough Skeletor. of. That was my biggest <laughs> exactly. problem. Yep. So I, you know, that's why that factored into my rating there as well. So, uh, we are going to take another quick commercial break and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the brand new, uh, HBO max documentary on Woodstock 99. So stay tuned guys. We'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast. 
This is Ed from the What's Real podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. You think you're special, you do, I can see it in your And we're back, and it is time to get into the documentary, brand new 2021 on HBO Max. This is Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. Uh, This documentary explores Woodstock 99, a three-day music festival promoted to echo unity and counterculture idealism of the original 1969 concert, but instead devolved into rioting, looting, and sexual assaults. So this is 110 minutes, and uh, I had heard a lot of people talking about this one. I had forgotten it was even coming on HBO Max, and then I decided to give it a watch. Uh, This is one that me and you both watched independently and then said, like, hey, let's talk about it here on the podcast. Um, I always thought there was a really interesting story here because I remember when this happened and everything, and I specifically remember the the rioting and the fires and the whole nine. Um, They go on to kind of repeat a lot of the stuff that we've seen and heard in the past about this. Um, They did kind of get more in depth about the sexual assaults, uh, but not with anybody really that was assaulted. It was just kind of hearsay and stuff like that. Not saying that it didn't happen. And I'm not saying that it did. I'm just telling you the presentation in the documentary. Um, there were a lot of things in this that I did not like. Um, I thought that there was a lot of skewered reporting here, uh, where kind of people were looking at an event that was, you know, 20 plus years old at this point, uh, with today's lens. And that's not always, it doesn't always paint the most clear picture of anything, uh, and take it from us as people that were alive and paying attention to stuff like this at the time, um, a lot of the the interpretations of things in this documentary were simply not the way that people interpreted them at the time. Um, it kind of made for a weird, skewered documentary. Now, I know a lot of documentaries, the Jay, and we've talked about this before, documentaries on what they're supposed to be are just generally movies that show you something happening as it unfolds. And they're not doing commentary. They don't have talking heads. And they're basically not trying to shift your opinion of anything. They're just trying to present to you what happened and you make your mind up for yourself. Um, But this one certainly had a clear agenda with a lot of stuff. And I just didn't see eye to eye with a lot of it. And a lot of it was frankly frustrating in that regard. 
Yeah, my, my initial takes hit y'all. It was directed by Garrett Price, but the executive producer was Bill Simmons, who is somebody that um, made a lot of documentaries that I was into um, more in the sports realm, though. You know, he did the, of course, the HBO Andre the Giant documentary yeah. and a bunch of um, 30 for 30s. So he's a, a solid document, you know, Tarion and, and, you know, was the executive producer on this, but kind of out of his wheelhouse uh, away from the sports world here. And, um, you know, I, I concur with you on a lot of that. Like my personal perspective, as you mentioned, I did remember a lot of this. I did remember the, the fires specifically, but then on the other hand of that for myself, there was a lot that I didn't remember. And I think that's what got me into this uh, a lot more than, than it seems like maybe you were because you might've met, remembered a lot more than I did, but that made it a lot more interesting to me because I wanted to kind of see where it was going. Uh, you know, of course they, they pull out your heartstrings a bit within this. Uh, there's a lot of different aspects that, that we can get into, but one, one that stood out off the bat here was one of the, uh, festival uh, attendees and they, they interviewed a bunch of them, but this one in particular, they kind of followed he and his friend's story. And I knew it was going to a dark place, but I didn't remember. And you know, this guy wasn't like a famous person exactly where it was going. So that interested me. And of course they carried that kind of storyline on till towards the end where you find out the fate of their friend who unfortunately uh, it would be revealed passed away from uh what I guess the cause of death was like heat exhaustion and dehydration, but they even say like he wasn't treated properly at all yeah, and, and things like that. So, that, you know, that, that, that of course stood out to me, that whole storyline. That was to me the best part of this. I was hoping at one point that this documentary was going to be like a collection of stories like that. Uh, right. But yeah, because they had his his journal and his journal yeah. entries and they had somebody kind of narrating what he actually wrote, like his friends yeah. provided his actual journal from the, the Woodstock 99 Festival. And that to me is kind of what I really wanted this to be from the jump, because I knew that the promoters were involved because I'd already seen a trailer. Um, so, like, you know, you get the aspect of the promoters, you get the aspect of maybe somebody that had something tragic happen to them. You get the aspect of somebody that like, you know, like I really did expect to at least have somebody interviewed where these people like, you know, like uh, like my buddy Bill got married and we did this for his bachelor party instead. And like we had one of the greatest weekends of our lives, like where it wasn't negative for everybody that went there, because I'm sure it wasn't negative for everyone there. Um and, you know, like some funny anecdotes and some stories and maybe some artist recollections of things that happened, which they got a little bit of that. Um, but, you know, for the promoters in this to act like they had no idea something like this could happen and how dare people do oh, stuff they were like killing this. Me. They knew exactly yeah. what they were doing with this and they just didn't give a shit. It was all about just packing it with so many acts that they could sell tickets to a a, a demographic of people that they felt could afford it and that's what they went for yeah and that's why like the big thing towards the end building up the riots and like they're smashing vans and spray painting greed and corporate greed on things and and that's i think what went into it too because a a big underlying part of this whole thing of course was exactly like you said, hey, Ed, was these guys just basically paying for the top acts of 1999. 
like the the bands that were making the most money at the time. And it is what it is. You know, however you feel about those bands in hindsight in 2021 or whatever, if you never liked them, if you liked them at one point, if you still like them, whatever the case, they were the top, you know, some of the top music acts of that time. And it just created a complete smorgasbord from Kid Rock to Limp Biscuit, And I, I'm sure we could get into Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit was a big part of this. And then, of course, uh, they had Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of Korn, uh, was part of the interview. And, and Korn was a big act on the card. And then and then you had like Alanis Morissette and Jewel. And DMX. Uh, as part too. of it and some of it. And then throw in DMX. And, and that's kind of my point. It was all over the place because I don't think they did like research into what's going to work. They just well, hired, you know, like you mentioned, who is going to bring the most money to to bring the most people that can afford coming here for three days. There is a part in the documentary. And even though I can't stand him and I think he's completely fucking full of shit, he's a, an elitist asshole and you know, all that, but he tells the story and I'm talking about Moby uh, where he tells this story about, he was on a bus and like, he saw like this banner that his name wasn't on but he saw all these other band names and he's like, wait a minute, this is Woodstock. And then they had this whole right. yep. other subsection that Moby was supposed to play where they had like the 24 hour rave and shit like that. And just a lot of things that didn't really fit together with this. And it just, to me, they didn't make this point, but like at that part in the documentary, it came off like these dudes who run this show are so gross and exploitive and money hungry that like there's nothing they can leave go like they just had to put the 24 hour rave tent there that didn't fit at all for people and they even said to like whenever you see the band lineups and the person that this show is aimed towards like you think they want to go to 24 hour raves and shit like on top of it and it's encouraged for people to get no sleep and there's no downtime and shit. And that's like that ended up being a terrible idea and a terrible thing for the whole weekend, because it's just, dude, when people are partying 24 hours a day and it's uncomfortable and it's hot and they don't have the things that they want, like people start doing goofy shit from just delirium, let alone being pissed. Exactly. Off. Yeah. And that's and that's what happened. I mean, you're talking people died at this event. Uh, you're talking about all of the deplorable conditions that they covered from the $4 waters, which was one of the reasons that started the the rage. And, you know, in 1999, these young kids having to pay $4 for a bottle of water when, you know, that they, they mentioned this huge aspect of this concert for where they were at in the summer there was the heat was just ridiculous. And these people were all dehydrated. Like you mentioned, partying the, the bathroom situation, of course, got to the point where there was shit everywhere. These kids are thinking they're doing what the Woodstock 69 attendees did and, you know, had fun rolling in the mud, but these goofs to their knowledge or not, were rolling an actual fucking human excrement. And the showers they said were just horrible and, and, and dudes were going cause there was only a tarp up for the women's showers. Yeah, there so were course, assaults were and it was pulling it down and, Yeah, doing terrible things. And yeah, just a, a lot of terrible shit happened. And then again, you're looking at the original Woodstock in 69, even the, the Woodstock from 94 where, with the specific acts and this being a peace and love event. And you bring in new metal 
of the time. And and that becomes a thing because these promoters are blaming Fred Durst. Like that guy, you know, the one promoter's even on there calling Fred Durst an asshole. He's like, you know, I went and tried to talk to him. He's telling them the, the break stuff. And like everybody says on here, it's like, that's Fred Durst being Fred Durst. That's what you hired him to do. Yep. He's doing his fucking songs. So that's on you. And those guys can't take responsibility for things like that. Then DMX, like you mentioned, had an amazing set for the time. That's still like a top tier uh, YouTube, you know, viewed uh, video. I know like a couple years ago, I, I just rewatched it again. It got, yeah, it's a great performance, but then they bring up how, you know, it was an excuse for white people to yell the N word and that becomes a controversial thing. And uh, yeah, there were, there was a lot to this that, that went awry. And uh, unfortunately, not even just like the funny, you know, kind of rolling in shit aspect of things. It got to the point of getting really dark, which they cover in here uh, again, following a, a, a attendees whose friend passed away at this event to the hundreds of, you know, you know, like you said, none of them are, are official or whatever, but it's but just like sexual assaults and stuff. Yeah. Proposed the sexual assaults. Like that one woman comes on and says how she, started hearing about it. So she started a website and she had like a huge number of women reaching out to her, you know, saying that some really fucked up shit happened to them at Woodstock 99. And and that just puts, you know, a real negative dampering on anything all, all leading up to the final performance with the red hot chili peppers on the last night on Sunday. And uh, as Hey Ed said, the pre-fermentioned fires that people started and they have the footage of the, the promoter dude that I can't stand the bald dude coming out on the stage and trying to, you know, fucking, you know, regulate the situation horrifically. And he says like Anthony Kiedis just, they played like a, one of their songs. It's basically like fire. You know, that's fire. Well, that's not theirs. That's Hendrix's <laughs> fire, but okay. They, they played Hendrix's fire. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, but, but again, that's what goes into this documentary as a whole for myself and really just kind of like you mentioned, I, I I did the same thing you did. I stumbled upon it and was um, I was really engrossed by it, you know, and with that word thrown out there, grossed out by it because, you know, seeing like you mentioned, the greed of the promoters and just the conditions that stemmed from everything was just deplorable. Yeah, it's pretty messy, to be honest with you. And, you know, You'll have that from time to time, especially whenever people are doing things just strictly for money and no other reason other than that. So uh, this is no different. Um, I think that, like I said, the documentary itself could have been handled a little bit better uh, than it was. Um, it wasn't terrible. Um, it just had uh, some weird perspectives and things like that for it. But, you know, uh, I think that a lot of people are going to be disappointed by this. Uh, and I think that's a lot of people like me, like who were from the era. And I think a lot of people are going to like this. And that's most likely people that weren't born and, you know, until afterwards. So, you know, uh, I believe though, for this one, the Jay, as we do here on the show, this one does have a tagline. Did we get a tagline for this one? So the tagline, I mean, I don't know if it's basically like the, the subtitle of it, which uh, I think you mentioned at the outset is uh, Woodstock 99 peace, love and rage. And that's the only one I was seeing. I didn't know if you saw a different one. And I didn't, but also I wanted to mention this too. This isn't necessarily a standalone documentary. Uh, HBO has this thing now called music box, and it's going to be a series of documentaries. I believe about a myriad of different topics. I did not, however, see any other titles listed as of yet. I don't know if you've heard anything about it or not. The J. 
No, I, I did notice that, that it was part of this music box thing. So I figured it was, you know, basically a docu-series on HBO Max that they're going to have music-related documentaries popping up. Yeah, so we'll have to keep our eye on that because we might see a lot more interesting stuff coming out as well. Uh, and as you guys know, we do the five-star rating scale on this show. And I'm going to go with two and a half stars on this one, Jay. I'm with you. Two and a half. As I mentioned, it was interesting. Uh, you made a, a lot of great points about the agenda uh, of you know certain talking heads and things like that, kind of throwing it off. But uh, overall, uh, again, stumbling upon it, reliving this and just seeing how fucking crazy it got. Because it, it was one of those documentaries as it went on. I'm like, you know, it was kind of getting crazier and crazier till the whole end crescendo of the full blown riots and fires, you know? So, um, but then of course the aftermath was definitely tough to watch. It's always just despicable to hear about young girls getting assaulted like that and, and everything that, that was on the dark side of it. And, and again, with that story, they followed with the attendees, uh, friend passing away during uh, Metallica's performance and, and just not having the proper care that they most likely, you know, a normal EMT team could have saved his life. But these guys were completely unprepared for pretty much everything that went down in those three days. Yeah. So that's uh that's a pretty much good rundown, I believe, of the documentary. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. So we have to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to do Thursday. Oh, oh, shit. Oh, Dude, an arrow just went by my head. I forgot all about this shit. Are you all right? Hey, Take yeah. us to break. We'll be right back on the What's Real podcast. I'm nervous. I gotta go. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast, urging you to check out the Make Results Not Excuses clothing company today. In 2017, Marcus and Jason began their fitness journey, and after the first day, both men looked at each other and wondered what they got themselves into. They were out of shape and struggled to initially find the motivation to keep going. It was a fight. Like many things, you want life. They worked hard and eventually found themselves in the best shape of their lives. When they realized they achieved their goal, Mark looked at Jason and said, make results, not excuses. Being the fearless businessman that Jason was, he said, we need to put that on a shirt. And so the buzz began. They were so passionate about being a part of something positive and making something good out of a bad situation, whether it was fitness, business, health, lifestyle, or converting your daydreams into tangible visions, they didn't just love seeing people wearing it, they loved seeing people live by it. It's a movement, and one that reaches people in all situations. Unfortunately, Jason left us too young, and Mark is committed to carrying on his legacy. Tomorrow isn't promised, and if you wait until the last minute to achieve your goal, the opportunity may not be waiting for you. We promise to support the Make Results, Not Excuses community, and our community includes everybody. Let's make this happen today. Check us out at MakeResultsNotExcuses.com. Again, that's MakeResultsNotExcuses.com. So make results and not excuses starting now. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And that's right. It is that time once again, fresh out of a Cambodian hospital. I am. I survived the bullet wound, thankfully. Uh, we oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, I, I didn't get caught. The fucking arrow went zipping by my head, but it all came back to me, you know, with our hiatus from Thursday Night Prime and what goes down. So. You know, I didn't even ask. Unscathed so far. Hey, I didn't y'all. even ask you this. Did you drag me out of there? I just blacked out at one point. 
I had to, brother. I pr- I'm here for I, you. You know, I that. appreciate that, man. Seriously, Jesus, this is. You know, guys, you wonder why we can't do this segment every week, and this is a big reason why, man. It's the wear and tear that uh, Thursday Night Prime puts on you. Oh, I I barely survived the last run, man. My wife was getting pissed. Oh, man, that's why we had to take such a long break, man. You know, you're you finally recovered. Now you're pulling me out of enemy fire. It's ridiculous. Yep. But here we are with the triumphant return of Thursday Night Prime. Uh, we got a doozy this week. This is from basically before the era, but, you know, whenever it comes to revenge stuff, it works perfectly. Uh, we're going back to 1982 with director William Lustig. We're talking Vigilante. Uh, Vigilante is an awesome movie. Uh, check out the cast real quick. We got Robert Forster, Fred Williamson. We got Richard Bright. We got uh, Don Blakely shows up in this one. Willie Colon, Joe Spinell, Carol Lindley. Uh, our man, I don't know if you noticed him or not, the J. Steve James is in this motherfucking movie. Well, of course. So you can never miss Steve James. You know, we got a doozy here, as I said, and this is why. So New York City factory worker Eddie Marino is a solid citizen and a regular guy until the day a sadistic street gang brutally assaults his wife and murders his child. When a corrupt judge sets the thugs free, Eddie goes berserk and vows revenge. And the good thing for Eddie is he got friends. So uh, this movie is really cool uh, in the way that it it's ridiculous how much it punishes Robert Forster for being the good guy here. Um, he gets sentenced to 30 days in prison, basically, for... Yeah, because of contempt of court. Yeah, because <laughs> he goes after the judge in this one. But, of course, this isn't just any 30-day bid. They sent this motherfucker to the pen, uh, which is kind of hilarious. But it's it's perfect for what the movie's kind of setting up. And it's weird because you're not going to see this too many times in this type of movie. Uh, it's totally an exploitation movie, uh, but it's also a morality tale. Uh, And I think that's what makes it very interesting. Uh, You get uh, a really good performance from Fred Williamson in this one as uh, his buddy, uh, basically, who uh, had set up like this little vigilante squad because he's tired of all the crime in the neighborhood. And uh, he's kind of trying to get uh, Eddie, the Robert Forster character, on board with him. And Forster's kind of like, dude, you're like a little bit much, man. Like, this isn't the right way to go about doing this. And then... Yeah, that was cool. That that gives like a little realistic, quote unquote, flavor to it initially, you know, yeah. where he's not just jumping on. He's like kind of just like like how we would be. That's why I bring that up, like us in real life kind of reaction. Like, dude, what are you what are you talking about? What are you doing? Yeah, you know, like it, you're fucking crazy kind of thing. Until he gets put directly in the sights of the local street crime that the character in Nick is always complaining about. Uh, and it's a dude, that scene is so brutal. Uh, with his wife and kid, man. Like, it's not extremely graphic, but the way that it's shot and the way that it all unfolds, it, it's like a punch right in the nuts. As we say, a lot of the times that's worse because then your mind just fills in the blanks, which is more brutal than seeing it. But it also sets up the gang to get a big dose of revenge at the at the hands of Robert Forster and his friends. Uh, And those scenes, as wild as they are, are still pretty good, really effective. And this movie's really gritty and really nasty, but it's super effective. It does exactly what you like, what it's supposed to do. Like when you go see a movie called Vigilante, you know what you're getting into. And that's exactly what they deliver on here. And it's interesting, too. 
because you know this about me, the Jay, I'm a pretty big fan of Bill Lustig's uh, movie Maniac. We both are, for in fact, we've we've talked yep, about it here on the sure. show. Uh, and this is the natural progression of him as a filmmaker uh, in this movie. And dude, I don't know. Now, you had you seen this before we watched it here, the Jay, or is this your first time seeing this? It's classically, it's another one I have, but it's been forever. Okay. But the, the reason why I bring it up, and this is very interesting to me, I'd love to actually ask Bill Lustig himself about this. Uh, maybe one day I'll have the chance to do so. Uh, but when you watch Maniac, uh, most of the movie outside of the stuff with him and Carol Monroe is shot at night. And this movie is the exact opposite of that, where most of the movie is shot during the day. And if you notice, too, it's not everything seems to be like lit by daylight. And because of that, it has this gloomy kind of look to it. And it gives the movie kind of a, a whole vibe uh, that you're kind of stuck in the muck with the the scumbags on the street. And these guys that are like really in the doldrums doing dark shit to fight back against it. And I really like the effect that that has on the look and feel of the movie. No, it's a great call because as we always shout out, another huge character in Vigilante is early 1980s New York, with course, a, which is always yep. a premier set. And you're always going to get that with Bill Lustig, especially with his earlier stuff. Um, that was 100%, I believe, the, the like what he wrote and directed toward. Like he couldn't fathom possibly taking. I mean, it's really no different than like what a Spike Lee or Woody Allen does. It, it's just amazing that. Uh, New York's the same place, but if you take those three directors right there and maybe even throw in a sprinkle of Larry Cohen, you're getting three or four completely different perspectives of what New York City is and looks like and feels like. Yep. So my highlights thrown at you. Okay. Is it time for the Jays highlights? Yeah, go for it, man. So one of them is going to be. Well, I just I love how they build things up in this film and, and, you know, how you start rooting, of course, it's like pretty much the whole gimmick to the revenge film. And and at one point um, and you you could correct me here, I I forget if it was Fred Williamson or Steve James's character was chasing a a thug at one point. Oh, it's Fred Williamson. Pretty decent. Yeah, I thought it was Fred Williamson. And he's chasing Frank Pesci's character, who as one of the bad guys is one of the best ones in the movie. So that's why I bring this up as a highlight because it gets to a point they're they're running up this this area this building and there's like this fence yep. and Pesci's character gets around it and and Fred Williamson's on the other side and he's just talking shit on him and it just makes you just you know it's the the thing is the audience member man you're just like I can't wait till he gets gets his hands on this guy and he's like you're stupid you can't get me he's like your sister couldn't catch me Dude, he's, no, and, he's, uh, or he's like you couldn't catch my sister he, when he goes nuts and shakes the cage like the ultimate warrior he's like the, yes. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, you big fucking dummy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just turns around and takes off. And then, of course, um, you know, he runs into to one of their boys oh, yeah. and gets uh, cut cut off. And then, you know, Williamson catches up and he's like, "Hey, man, save some of him for me." You know, and that that was a great part. Uh, the other highlight was uh, when Robert Forster finally, you know, completely turns and they get their first quote unquote victim which is one of the guys that was part of the thug gang and, and that Forster's character thinks um, at that point may or may not have killed his wife. I don't even think he cares. He was like the leader. And that guy was basic. like, well, the, they yeah, present basically. him as the leader, but he's not the leader. The leader's the last guy. Right. 
Yeah, he's like one of the top dudes in the gang, yep. and uh, he's with this chick. So they take him out, but then the chick comes out with a gun. And uh, like we always say, man, early 80s movies, the women, she gets blown across the hotel room into the shower curtain. Dude, wow. you could tell back then that uh, Lustig had this idea with his movies where, you know, regardless of what they were, there was going to be that one major impact moment. And you get it in Maniac when Savini gets his head blown off and you get it in Vigilante when the chick gets fucking blown into the bathroom. Like, I mean, (laughs) like she got hit with a fucking cannonball. And exactly. That was and dude, I don't know if you know anything about this or not, but I, I, I always thought this was really one of the more interesting things about Vigilante. So that character that the henchman dude there, you know, that that they shoot when they go to the, the hotel room or whatever that was. Uh, it's it's an actor named Willie Colon, uh, and the re- right Erika. and the reason why I bring it up is because this is kind of like indicative of New York City at the time. He was one hundred percent a New Yorker. Uh, he he was an actor. He was a New Yorkan salsa musician and social activist. He began his career as a trombonist. He sings, writes, produces, and acts. He is also involved in the politics of New York City and as well as international politics. So he's not just a regular run of the mill actor. And I always think that that's pretty interesting stuff because it's like, you know, like the people that Bill Lustig knows. It's pretty vast and interesting because of stuff like that. And you're only going to get stuff like that filming movies in New York. Really cool. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, And yeah, just to round out my highlights, my last highlight, hey, of course, was the big climax and him dropping the dude off the crane and his brains just splatter. And that's an amazing stuff. Oh yeah. For me, you just imagine that height, you know, great gritty early 1980s. And dude, the great way. One of my favorite things about vigilante is the ending. Uh, Because now keep in mind that the Robert Forster character has seen his wife get mangled by these dudes. Uh, He's seen his child. Well, he didn't see it, but like his child was murdered um, his wife wants nothing to do with him at this point because she feels like he left them unprotected. Um, his friends are basically all insane. He has nothing to live for. Um, and when he throws the dude off the crane, there's this moment where like he's kind of like he's sad. But I think the reason why is because he knows that it's pretty much over. But then there's one more scene at the end, uh, because earlier in the movie, they show him as his wife and his son at the park and they're flying like a remote control airplane. And at this point, they show the final scene, which is the judge walking out to his car. You see Robert Forrester in his car, pulls out the remote control from the airplane, hits a switch on it, and it blows up the judge's car, kind of completing the job as the credits roll. Um, it's a pretty, pretty gritty and brutal exploitation movie. Um, it certainly hits all the notes that it should, and it's a pretty effective movie with some really good performances. And I won't say that this one's a lot of fun because fun's not the right word for it. It's just extremely well executed, and it's a really good flick. Yeah, enter- entertaining, you know, dark, a dark, entertaining ride yeah. for sure. You know, parallel, of course, with. Another alumni of Thursday Night Prime, uh, of course, Death Wish, the original Death Wish, where, as you mentioned, it seemed like they had that theme, you know, just like Charles Bronson's character in Death Wish, where he starts getting the adrenaline from it, you know, from the vigilanteism and that kind of 
becomes his new identity. And it was like, you know, the same thing with Forster's character. Like you mentioned, he's, he seemed like sad that it was going to be over at, at the, those certain points because he had nothing else in his life other than vig- vigilante. Yeah, and dude, I think, and revenge. I think it's pretty clear too, even though they don't spell it out for you that Robert Forster's character didn't make it much further than the end of this movie, whether it be because of police or maybe because he was killed. Right, jail. Uh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't a good him. ending yeah. for that character, even though he was fulfilled and glad that he was able to get the revenge for what happened to his family and him. Um, it was pretty much all downhill from there, and most likely the same for Fred Williamson and his pals, too. So, uh, but ultimately, you know, Vigilante's pretty damn good, uh, revenge flick for sure. So, the J, we got a tagline. I imagine we have a really good one for this one. We sure do. You're not safe anymore. There's only one way to stop them. Vigilante. There you go. So as we do here on the show, five-star rating scale, the J, what do you give Vigilante? Solid three and a half for William Lustig's 1982 Vigilante. Well, I liked it a little bit more than you because I'm going to give this one four. This is, to me, one of the stronger entries that we've had so far on Thursday Night Prime. So hope you guys enjoyed that. We will be back next week with another Thursday Night Prime episode uh if you listen to the show check out the ads in between if you want to find out what that is but we will have more from thursday night prime next week as long as we can possibly stand it so survive yeah because i was going to mention there wasn't a whole lot if any really there's a couple chuckle moments in this because of the characters but not too much of what the jay always looks for during the tnp segment that uic the unintentional comedy next week We're going to fill that gap. Absolutely. So stay tuned for that and stay tuned because we have to take a quick commercial break. And wherever we come back, we are going to wrap up the show. And of course, we're going to be talking some goofs. So we'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys, this is the Jay from the What's Real podcast for our official sponsor, Churchill Pictures. Churchill Pictures is a Pittsburgh-based film production company founded by Damiano Fusca and Jared Bajoris. Check out churchillpictures.com for all kinds of information about the company and their work. The website contains dozens of videos, including short films, movie previews, comedy sketches, the entire documentary UCW, The Greatest Show You Never Saw, exclusive independent pro wrestling matches, links to view or purchase their two feature films, Deference and the Unsung, the entire history of the What's Real podcast, the Film City podcast, and so much more. Check out churchhillpictures.com today and also check out the official Churchill Pictures YouTube channel. Search for Churchill Pictures and please subscribe. Also follow Churchill Pictures on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. That's right, Herman. Once again, it's time. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? Oh, you know the Goofs or Goofs segment for the big episode 8-0 is not going to disappoint. Hey, you know, we're bringing that Goof Tartar this week with a waxwork fucking reference to start off. And we're starting off with our arch rivals, this week, hate you, because I don't know if you caught wind of this, because uh, this was actually the uh, headline here on Odyssey.com as Browns fans compare Big Ben to Sloth from the Goonies. 
And <laughs> it goes on to state how one big win over the Steelers and Browns fans are acting like they own the AFC North already. A Cleveland-themed sports fan account tweeted a meme on Monday showing the starting quarterbacks of the division with Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow giving a thumbs up, Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield with his fingers down, and Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson pointing. Then we come to ben, Big Ben Roethlisberger. The meme is a photo of him sitting on the bench with his hands in his pockets as the final seconds tick off the clock in the embarrassing wildcard game last season with, of course, his face replaced with sloth from the 1980s classic movie, The Goonies. Yeah, that's Browns fans for you. If they can't beat you good games, all-time wins, or Super Bowls, they'll just make funny pictures of you. <laughs> We'll be remembering this one when the season starts and the real fun begins. Hate you, because a lot of talk with the Browns uh, doing another Super Bowl run this year. (laughs) A lot of talking heads that I've been hearing. So let's let's see how that that occasion, because Browns and Super Bowl has been used in the same sentence way too fucking much in the last, I don't know, year or so. Way too much. But hey, jinx them all you want, guys, because fuck the Browns. Exactly. Sorry if, sorry if you're a Browns fan that supports us. We still I'm not it. sorry at all. Maybe not. <laughs> Next up, hey, you know, of course, with the Olympic Games going strong here in 2021, a video came out of, because, uh, of course, with them being in Tokyo, I didn't know if you caught this one. It's a basketball robot that they had on display. Did you catch any of the basketball robot? I didn't, fans? actually, no. Yeah, so it was uh, posted on the Bleacher Report. Um, very crazy because we talk about that um, the the dynamic company out of Massachusetts that has all the ones that do like parkour and stuff okay, like that. Yep. So I'm thinking this one, you know, gives them a run for its money. Uh, but well, actually, it's saying Tokyo 2020 on the video. So uh, I'm not exactly sure the whole thing behind the video, but just sitting here watching a video uh, that states they really brought out a basketball robot during halftime at the Olympics. And then this thing is just crushing like half court shots and shit like Jesus. that. So, yeah, I just uh, sent it to your uh, messenger here live on the air because I always like to surprise your ass. But um you know, for a, a reference for you uh, that's coming at you through Facebook. But uh, but yeah, this thing is just drowning threes and it's not going to be too long. There was that movie with uh, Hugh Jackman, you know, with the, the robot wars and everybody in the futures, you know, watching these robot sports. That shit is not too far around the corner. Hate you, I'm thinking in real life. Jeez, I'm watching this and it's like it's pretty terrifying. Like even the the way he, yeah, it's just draining half court. The shots. way this thing like backs up after it hits that first shot is like disturbing, like really disturbing. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> like we say, man, James Cameron called it fucking T two judgment. Skynet's day. coming but for your real. ass. Skynet is coming for all our asses. <laughs> Next up on the Goose or Goose eighty. I thought this was hilarious. You might remember a classic episode of South Park where Cartman goes to Casa Bonita. Yeah. This like, you know, crazy like Mexican restaurant. Like it's in Colorado. Well, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park creators, aim to buy the actual real life Casa Bonita as the landmark eatery filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in April. Hey. I mean, they got enough money. They could buy whatever the fuck they want. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> As they state in the article here, we want to buy Casa Bonita and treat it right. I feel like it was neglected even before the pandemic, Parker revealed uh, to The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, the company that currently owns Casa Bonita, Sam, Summit Family Restaurants, filed for Chapter 11 uh, protection in Arizona. Nonetheless, the South Park co-creators are trying to make a deal work. We are absolutely trying to buy it, Parker said. We are going to do everything we can. We want to make it right and make it amazing. And uh, that that was an episode that always cracked me up because Cartman's just one of my favorite characters. And it's just fucking hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. You know, you don't hear a lot of stuff about them anymore. So, like, I feel like whenever they do something like that, they're not even doing it for the attention. Like, they clearly don't even want the, the attention for shit like that. Yeah. I mean, he was even saying, we started talking about things we're going to make, mostly with the food. We're going to make really awesome food. I was already thinking about how I was going to make Black Bart's Cave a little bigger. Uh, so, yeah, that was a child childhood location for them. So that was, that'd be like if we blew up, hey, uh, we bought uh, a Holiday Inn and revamped the indoor water slide, at least for myself, because I had uh, a local uh, hotel here. I had kid parties there two years in a row, because that was one of the only places back in the was 80s that, the that had an indoor water slide. Yeah. yeah, there you go. The Conley Inn. I called it the Holiday Inn. There you go. Yeah, we would have bought, bought the, the Conley Inn and just revamped the indoor water park. Uh, but I, did you ever play um, any of the South Park video games that were really awesome? They were like based on uh, RPGs. A few times I think I did, but I mean, it was nothing that I like personally had. Like I might have played other people's games. Okay, yeah, because the first one came out in 2017. It was called uh, South Park, the Fractured Butthole. Of course, but um, Casa Bonita was also featured Dude, in that uh, as part of downloadable content. That, that just reminds me, just as a side note, is there a South Park game that's VR or am I thinking of something else? I know there's Rick and Morty. Yeah, I was going to say you might be thinking of Rick and Morty because there's actually a couple. Rick, I, I have two different Rick and Morty. VR oh, no games. shit. Nothing, nothing from South Park that I know. Of. OK, yeah. I didn't even know. I didn't even realize there was two. <laughs> yeah, there's there's one called Trover Saves the Universe, which is based off of a. Uh, a character within the Rick and Morty world. And then of course there's the one, uh, I believe you mentioned you even played the first one, you know, just the, the Rick and Morty VR. Experience. Yeah. That one I definitely have. That's really fucking cool too, by the way. Yeah. So we're closing out goose or goose 80 with a whole story on super yachts that I found was super interesting. <laughs> this is from Bloomberg. Anybody interested? Bloomberg.com uh, super yacht staff secrets. And it's all about the wild super yacht secrets that I learned becoming a deckhand from cannabis buffets to choppering and caviar. Posh, posh charter life could be rough a rough ride for the crew, just as rough as it is for the J to say that. <laughs> but, um, you know, you got to believe you got to read it to believe it. Some of these stories, because I mean, you're, you know, you're obviously talking about the super rich here and it opens up the article with talking about a shipyard in the Netherlands, Netherlands, where the world's mega yacht maternity ward, the largest vessel of its kind being custom built for, of course, our man, the human dildo himself, amazon.com Inc. founder, Jeff Bezos, at a projected cost that tops over five hundred million for the Giga Yacht. <laughs> the Giga Yacht. My new uh, penis nickname for my vessel. Dude, <laughs> hey, yeah. I was looking at this too. So, like, apparently, like you know, the the crews that work these things are like typical crews. You know, like they they work a lot of the same ones. And it's like I just saw this quote. It's like watching the cameras can be like blooper TV. It's like one time we watched someone get slapped in the fl face by a flying fish. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> as it states on here. Sometimes, hey, Ed, you just need a second boat for prostitutes. <laughs> as, the, as the article states, gone are the days when pleasure yachts were drifting cocaine dens. It's definitely not the 80s anymore. Boats can be impounded and captains arrested for illegal substances thanks to port laws that clamped down on smuggling in the 90s. Uh, but however, um, you, prostitutes are a different story. Uh, we see day use girlfriends on other boats all the time, especially in the med. Um, the, the chef here has even witnessed big spenders fill a secondary super yacht with women to trail the lead vessel, swapping them on and off 10 at a time throughout the course of several days. Can I give you a quote from a conversation that's probably happened at least more than once down there? You sure can hate you. So, God damn it, Jared, you were supposed to bring the yacht full of prostitutes. Don't make me fucking tell you this again. (laughs) The yacht full of, like, well, great, dude. What's the party going to be without 735 whores? Like, you know what's better than the yacht we're in right now, hey, Ed? Like, what's that, the J? You see that boat behind us? Like, yeah, what's the deal? Like, that's ours, and it's filled with hookers. And then I would introduce you to the marijuana buffet. (laughs) At least there's no Coke boat. Yes. So some wild zany stories, nothing too gut busting, but hilarious nonetheless, as always here on episodes, 80s goofs or goofs. And as I always say to my bro from another Mo, hey, y'all, between Browns fans being big babies, calling Big Ben fucking sloth to Matt Stone and Trey Parker buying Casa Bonita to Skynet controlling robots that hit half court shots like it's nothing and to super yachts being trailed by yachts full of super hookers. Goofs are gifts. So that is it for us this week here on episode 80. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, If you have anything you'd like to add or if you'd like to advertise on the show, feel free to send us an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Also, if you guys are listening on iTunes, we'd appreciate a five-star review. Helps get more eyes and ears on the program. Uh, Also, if you guys listen, I'm sure you know this, but you can listen on as many uh, possible podcasting platforms that there are, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week on ChurchillPictures.com. But before we get out of here, I hear the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like Hey Ed and I buying the Conley Inn and filling water slides with cannabis and hookers. Hey, you But as I always say, love the show. Shout out as we have to do to the wizard behind the boards, the man himself, Cam. Cam, thanks for all you do. The 16K clear sound every week is unprecedented, man. We appreciate what you do. To my bro from another Mo, Hey, you We do it again. 80 episodes, man. Welcome to the 80s. Hey, you It's good to be here. Thorough content for a year and a half straight. We had the big What's Real part to get caught up with each other this past weekend. Had a blast with you, man. Always love spending my Tuesdays with you. It's a great time. As I do, leading the charge like General Custer is damn self. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for us here this week on episode 80. Of course, shout out to you, the J. Thanks for sitting down and doing the show with me here each and every week. I appreciate it. Nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother. From our producer, Cam, the wizard behind the boards, Thank you for all you do here, uh, making us sound great each and every week. And as we know here on the show, nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for us this week here on episode 80. Join us next week for episode 81 and beyond. 
So that is it, guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you right here next week, right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real? What's real? What's real?